through Paul again and he says this Romans 3 21 but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that uh, together. And just to say that before we uh, go any further, that there's an outline of uh, this morning's message. It looks a bit like that. If we to print it, but it's available as a PDF on the description box. Um, and some people like to use that to make notes, to focus their thinking and then something to reflect on in the week. Also at the end of the message, there'd be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments about uh, the things that we have looked at uh, together and particularly the, um, the, the text of Romans 3. So uh, we use the... Um, live chat for that so bear that in mind as we go through and, and do jot down anything that you'd um, like to use that time for uh, when we get to it and then before we go any further I'm going to pray and ask for God's help so let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together now. As your people, please would you help us to listen to it, to trust it and to obey it. And we ask this, that you might be seen amongst us as the God who is truthful, the God who is good and the God who is rightly sovereign over us. Amen. A young man was picked up for speeding. He duly received a court summons. He sat in the court for a while and when it was his turn, his name was called and he went and stood before the judge. The judge read the citation, guilty or not guilty. Well, he was caught red-handed and so he said, guilty. The judge brought down the gavel and said, I find you guilty. And he received a £500 fine or one day in jail. But then an amazing thing happened. The judge stood up. He took off his judicial robe, laid it over the back of the chair, walked down around the front 
stood next to the young man, took out his wallet and paid the fine. The whole court was stunned. What was the explanation for that? The explanation was this. The judge was his father. Now this is one of a number of stories that have often been told in an attempt to help people understand the significance of the cross. That God, who is like the judge in the story, pronounces a guilty verdict on humanity whose sentence is death and judgment. But then like the judge, God comes down from his judgment seat in the person of Jesus Christ and bears the people's punishment in their place when he dies on the cross. Now, it's not the only story that is told. There are more gruesome ones. One such story compares God to a railway switchman who sees that his son has wandered onto the main track just as a passenger train is hurtling toward him. If the man throws the switch, his son will live, but the train will crash into freight cars parked on the siding and many people will die. The father opts to leave the switch open and kill his son instead of killing the people on the train. Now, the reason that such stories are told is in part the zeal of the evangelist who wants his audience to understand the cross. Assumption behind this is that the cross is difficult to understand and therefore requires the help of such stories. But do such stories make the cross easier to understand? And it's tempting, once we've heard them, to then regurgitate them to the next generation without thinking critically about how well they work. Well, in this morning's meeting, we're going to take a look at Paul's presentation of the cross of Christ in Romans chapter 3. It's truly magnificent. And at the end, we'll be in a position to evaluate these stories and decide whether they are indeed worth repeating. Before we actually take a look at the text, we can learn a lot about its meaning from observing the position it occupies in the flow of Paul's argument. Because when we get to Romans chapter 3 verse 20, all human beings, without exception, justly stand under the wrath of God. That's where we stand because of our sin. And it's what we've been looking at in the last few weeks. And Paul expects us by now to have absorbed something of the weight of that. However, by the time we reach chapter 3 verse 27 and following, Paul is talking about people being justified. In the following chapters in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about how we now have peace with God. In Romans 6, how we are no longer under the power of sin. Well, how is it then that sin and wrath 
have been dealt with. So whatever else Romans 3, 21, 26 says, it must provide an answer to this question. Something has happened to remove God's wrath from those who deserve it. In other words, as we pay attention to the flow of Paul's argument, we can learn a lot about what our text is about before we've even begun. Prior to our text, God's wrath is centre stage. But after, it's gone. If last week was the problem, well, this week is the solution. Crucial to understanding what these verses mean is to understand the concept of propitiation. The word is there in verse 25. Have a look. Paul speaks of Jesus Christ as the one, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does propitiation mean? <clears throat> to propitiate means to placate or turn aside wrath. And here in Romans 3 verse 25, the object of propitiation is God. Propitiation is the action in which God is placated and his wrath is turned aside. And the use of the word in connection with Christ's death, his blood, emphasises that it was by Christ's death that God's wrath was turned aside from sinners. Now this understanding fits perfectly with the context. As we've seen, God's wrath at human sin is prominent in the section that immediately precedes Romans 3, 21, 26. And God's wrath is absent from God's justified people in the section that immediately follows. And it is by setting forth his son as a propitiation that God has turned his wrath aside, leaving his people justified before him. Now, some people have disputed the use of propitiation and have instead preferred to use the word expiation. Now, expiation is the idea of purging or cancelling or forgiving. And in Romans 3.25, the object of expiation would be sin. The use of the word in connection with Christ's death would emphasise that it was by Christ's death that sin was cancelled. Now, note the crucial difference here. Propitiation refers what happens to God's wrath. Expiation refers to what happens to human sin. Now, I mention this because Many people today have a problem with the idea that God would be angry. 
and in particular that he would be angry at them. People sometimes express this when they say, I don't believe in a God who is angry, or I like to think of God as a God of love. And if you prefer to think of God as one who isn't angry, then you will no doubt prefer the word expiation. But Paul is at pains to point out that all human beings justly stand under the wrath of God. That's where we stand because of our sin. But wonderfully, God's solution is to set forth the Lord Jesus as a propitiation, to turn aside God's wrath from his people by suffering in their place. Now do notice that human beings are not the ones who are offering, offering this propitiating sacrifice. No, we're not the ones turning aside God's wrath by something that we offer. God is both the subject and the object of propitiation. He is the one who both provides the propitiating sacrifice and he is the one who is propitiated. This is about God taking action to turn his wrath away. When Christians talk about Jesus' death, there is a tendency to talk in terms of me and my salvation. And so it might come as a surprise that Paul wants to talk about the cross first and foremost in terms of God and not us. Let's pick it up again from uh, Romans 3.25. So Paul is speaking of Jesus Christ as the one, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, whilst we might tend to think of Jesus' death in terms of me and my salvation, Paul wants to put it in terms of God and his justice. Why is that? Well, recall back in Genesis, chapter two, verse 17, God said that the penalty for sin is death. God said to Adam, uh, Genesis 2, 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And if there's one thing that we learn from Genesis chapter one, is that what God says happens. Let there be light, and there was light. Let the lamb produce living creatures, and it was so. God is the God who keeps his word. The question then becomes, where does this leave God's creation purpose? 
if all have sinned, then all will die. God's creation will come to ruin. How can God restore his creation, yet at the same time punish sin? At the end of the day, this is a question about God's justice. Paul shows not only how the cross provides salvation for sinners, but also demonstrates the justness of God throughout the process. This mention of God's justice being vindicated in the death of Christ raises the question though of what happened before Christ came. What was God doing about all the sins of those people in the Old Testament who enjoyed his favour? I mean, God can't simply ignore them because that would compromise his justice. Paul's answer is that God was delaying his judgment of those sins until they could be punished in Christ. The word forbearance occurs back in Romans chapter 2 verse 5 in the context of God delaying the day of his wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul's point then is that God's forbearance, that is his delay in punishing sin, is no longer in force now that Christ has died. For God has punished sin in him. An implication of this is that up till then, God's display of wrath had only been seen in a diluted form. It's a way of saying that all the pictures of God's wrath in the Bible up to this point have been dilute. Now, any manifestation of God's wrath that we've seen so far, you know, the exiles, uh, the plagues, the famine, war, any of those things that we have seen as manifestations of God's wrath, they were the diluted form. All those things that we read about in the Old Testament that people are so afraid of, they were only partial judgments. They weren't the ultimate display of God's judgment. They never faced the full weight of God's condemnation. In the past, in his forbearance, God left the sins of his people unpunished. And although he sometimes uh, chastised them with demolition of the city or going off into exile, they were only partial judgments. They weren't the ultimate judgment, for he left their sins committed beforehand unpunished, says Paul. But at the cross, God demonstrates his justice. God gave his word that the penalty for sin is death, curse and exclusion. And on the cross, Jesus paid that penalty of sin in the place of his people. He drank the bitter cup of God's wrath to save those whom the Father had given him. And his death redeems them so that they might dwell with God for all eternity. That, of course, leaves the unredeemed and their destiny. And in Revelation 14 verse 10, we learn that what their destiny is. 
It is to drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. But Paul makes no mention of that here. At this point, we can return to a question that Nikki asked when we looked at Romans 1. Yes, I have remembered. And it was a question, a very good question, concerning Romans 1.17. Let me read again Romans 1.17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was a question about how to understand the righteousness of God. Among other things, I said that at the time Paul doesn't really unpack it in Romans 1, but that he would when he gets to Romans chapter 3. So what progress have we made? Well, did you notice how Paul's use of the righteousness of God has been used in two slightly different but connected ways in the text? In Romans 3 verse 22, the righteousness of God is that which is given to believers through faith in Jesus Christ. Whilst God has found all of humanity unrighteous, Paul's gospel declares that God has provided a righteousness for his people. It's the idea that Jesus not only takes the penalty for our sin, that he becomes sin for us, but that he also gives us his righteousness. Now, that is not all unpacked for us in, here in verse 22, but that's the direction that Paul is heading in. Whereas in Romans 3 verse 25, Paul's use of the word righteousness of God is slightly different. Here, the righteousness of God is closely associated with God's justice. It's this idea that the cross vindicates God's word that the penalty for sin is death. So what we've got here is a dual concern that God be vindicated and that his people be vindicated. That God is not only shown to be righteous, but it is precisely this righteousness of God which comes to all who believe. But we began by asking whether telling stories makes the cross easier to understand. Well, let's take a look at the two offerings I provided and see how they measure up to Paul's presentation of the cross. The first story concerned the judge who passes sentence, steps down from the bench and then pays the fine in place of the criminal. The problem with this is that for the judge to take the criminal's place is profoundly unjust. 
The thing about a judge in a human law court is that he or she is simply the administrator of the system, the system of justice. In a human law court, there's no sense in which the criminal has legally offended the judge. In fact, if the crime is against the judge, then you have to get a different judge. That is to say that in a human law court, the crime is against the state or against the people or against the land. In that system, the judge is a sworn administrator of the system and it would be a miscarriage of justice if the judge were to take the criminal's place. But when God is the judge, the offence is always and necessarily against him. God is not the administrator of a system that's external to him. He is the offended party as well as the impartial judge. If we try and understand the cross in human law court categories, we risk ending up with an understanding of the cross which is profoundly unjust. Precisely the opposite of what Paul is wanting us to understand. Well, what then of the more gruesome story of the railway switchman who allows the train to kill his son rather than switch the track and kill a bunch of people on the train? Well, at this point, let me quote a comment um, on the use of this particular illustration from Pierced for Our Transgressions, which was a book written to rediscover the glory of penal substitution. It says this. The story of the railway switchman illustrates the substitutionary nature of Christ's death, but gives a distorted portrayal of God's will and God's law. The switchman, representing God the Father, is compelled to make a choice between two distinctly unpalatable options, and a decision is forced upon him by the pressure of unforeseen circumstances. His son is an unfortunate passive victim who has landed himself and his father in this dreadful situation by sheer carelessness, and he does not willingly consent to die. This contrasts starkly with the biblical picture of the cross as part of God's eternal plan, devised before the creation of the world to glorify the Son, of the Father as one who deliberately chose to send his Son into the world, of the Son as the willing, determined, self-giving saviour of his people. As Gary Williams concludes, the son has no idea of what's going on and presumably should not have been standing around on a railway track in the first place. Let me be clear, this illustration is a total travesty of penal substitution. I think if you read between the lines you kind of get the point. Now, you might think that the way forward is simply to find a better illustration. One of the things that we've been learning at Trinity Church Bradford is to enter the storyline of the Bible and learn to think in the categories that it provides. And actually, we're finding that at the end of the day, these are the easiest categories to think in because they are the reality. 
They're not illustrations that invite us to think about things a bit like this. It provides a comprehensive account of the whole world from creation to new creation. And central to that whole history of redemption is the cross of Christ, which not only demonstrates God's righteousness, the penalty for sin is death, but is the means by which he provides a righteousness for his people as Christ suffers and dies in our place. Let me pray and then I'll open it up to any questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity in which Paul has presented to us not both the problem of humanity that all are under um, sin, but the solution that you have provided in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you that it's in his death that um, you have provided um, a propitiatory sacrifice, that your wrath is uh, toward us is diverted onto him. And in that very act, you are propitiated. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that leaves us justified, righteous before you through faith. But Father, we also want to share Paul's concern that um, not just for our own salvation, but for the concern of your, um, the vindication of your word, that this salvation that you've provided does not overlook your justice, does not leave sin unpunished, but that you are seen to be the God who is just and who keeps his word. But finally, Father, we also pray, along with Paul's prayer back in Ephesians 3, that it's as we ponder uh, the cross, that that is where your love for us is displayed. So we continue to ask for that power to grasp the limitless dimensions of your self-giving um, love uh, to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory that what he has done would be um, honoured and he would have equal honour with you the Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, at this point, we have time for questions and comments. So, um, far away. Oh, the way it works, if you don't know, is to put a queue in the live chat, as will be demonstrated by Team Tech. And that lets us know that a question's coming, and then we'll wait for you. Always takes a few moments for the questions to come through, so just have a um, a time just to look back anything that I can clarify or anything further that you'd like to know about it's worth saying Paul's only just begun he's going to spend 
um, most of the rest of the letter unpacking this salvation. So, but today we've really looked at the, um, the means by which it has been wrought. Ah, okay, so question from Ricky. Oh, it's a question. There we go. What does it mean for the righteousness of God to be manifested apart from the law, but for the law to bear witness to it? Verse 21. That's a fair question. So that is Romans 3, 21. And um, we're beginning, he's going to say more about this um, later in the letter, not least Romans 7, but um, we're beginning to see how Paul is putting his Bible together. Um, because uh, the law is, is really talk, talking about the, um, the, the old covenant, um, the uh, people of Israel under the Mosaic law and the system that they had there with the priests and uh, the sacrificial system, um, all of that. And basically, the but now, in verse 21, isn't God's changed his mind. So it's not like a, okay, God's verdict on all humanity was this, but now, you know, he's got a soft spot for them. He'll, um, he'll think differently about them. The but now is a, is a temporal but now. It's it's a it's a it's a um, uh, a point in in history, redemptive history, which takes us from the old covenant to the new covenant. Okay, so and so if you're new to Christian things and you just think, well, what are you making of the Old Testament and um, you know, not least the the, the the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. That is all bound up. It's, it's from God. There's nothing wrong with it. It wasn't what the people made up. It was God's provision. But for that time, until the coming of Christ and his propitiatory death on the cross, that um, brings about um, the, the new covenant. That brings about the, um, uh, the final phase of redemptive history. I mean, if you go back to chapter one, it, it, it's in terms of Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who declared from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul's there, he's putting it together by saying there's the promises beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures but that those promises have now been fulfilled. Uh, in Romans 1, he's talking about the fact that God has enthroned his king, so the kingdom of God has come because the king's in place. But in Romans 3, he's picking up on this idea of his death was the provision for the people's sin so that he, a holy God, could dwell with them. So, so, th so in that sense, you've got two parts of it. So on the one hand, this righteousness of God, this salvation, has been manifested apart from the law. So this is a, um, 
this isn't wrapped up in the old system. This is this is new. This is um, um, uh, it's not under under the old system. The old system is is obsolete. We've got a new system operating now, but. It's interesting because you could say, well, does that mean the law has no purpose? No, the purpose of the law now is to bear witness to that which has arrived. Okay, so there's still value in the law because the law points forward to and anticipates um, uh, this. So not least the sacrificial system, the fact that they had to make sacrifice, I mean, it's put on the book of Hebrews, they have to offer sacrifice day after day after day after day of animals what does that mean about the sacrifice? It doesn't work. Because if it did work, you would make the sacrifice and sin would be dealt with. But the fact they have to keep making the sacrifices means that the problem of sin has not been dealt with. So that's aching for a fulfillment, which is found in Christ, because Christ died once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So. Um, so in that sense, he's 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 um, he's beginning to show us how he's putting his Bible together. Now that's important because if you remember, one of the big issues that Paul's got to do is to engage with the Jews. Um, you know, because they need um, instruction on how to make sense of the coming of Christ and where that leads them and the promises. So. You know, for us, it might be slightly less of an issue, uh, though actually it becomes an issue for us because as we enter the story on the Bible, you know, we think, well, what do we do with the Old Testament? You know, do we read Amos? Um, that sort of thing. So hopefully that helps. Um, have I answered the question? Yeah. Good one. Anybody else would like the opportunity? the thinking also I mean, it, it makes a direct link with verse 20 as well because there it talks about how um, uh, 320 for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin so there's that again showing us how he's putting things together that through the law become conscious of sin that doesn't provide the righteousness that his people need and therefore is um, not, unable to manifest that righteousness, but nevertheless bear witness to it by saying it's it's required. Cool. Well, I can only think that everyone's happy. You might all be dying to hear this poem. You're all thinking like, what's it, what's going on? It's not one I've written, so you're okay. Last opportunity to uh, 
Oh, we have a question from Nikki. patiently for. We often have three so if another person wants to jump in as well that's all good. very good question uh, fairly asked so um, Nikki says should we always stay clear of illustrations to explain biblical truths because they will in some way fall short interesting one because in the book Pierce Files Transgressions where they they recount um, the stories like the judge illustration and the um, railway switchman illustration and then basically uh, turn to shreds. Um, it then says, oh, uh, if you're gonna use the illustration, here are like six things to look for. But <laughs> bear in mind that they've picked like the illustrations that everyone uses, like you, you end up thinking, well, okay, well, what are, the, what are these illustrations that we are supposed to be using? Because in many ways, the ones that we do use um, don't do justice. So, um, so I mean, I mean, there aren't any rules. I suppose uh, the, the first instance is, I think our tendency will be to tell stories that we've heard, because you know we God has built us to imitate those that have gone before us. You know, that's, that's how the sort of dynamic works. You, know, you hear a story and then you retell that story. And um, obviously that whole idea of that works if, if we're showing good examples, but obviously if, if there are stories that are told that we retell that actually don't do the cross justice, at some point we just need to stop and scrutinize the stories that we tell and just think, let's, um, let's have a think about this, which I guess is you know, a little bit of what we've done uh, this morning um, so I suppose yeah, it's, it's worth at least having a look at the stories that we tell and actually seeing how how clear are they how well do they do and you're kind of right every illustration's gonna fall short so in terms of if the, if the um the standard is it's got to be uh, you know perfect you know, we probably aren't going to tell any any stories, use any illustrations. Um, I mean, a couple of things that I think we do here at Trinity, um, in terms of where we're going, I think I think we'd say this. So, on the one hand, we are um, we're committed to this idea of entering the storyline of the Bible, thinking in biblical categories, and so basically thinking the way the Bible thinks. So, thinking about God and the world and us, the way that God thinks about himself, the world and us. And that would inevitably mean that we have to learn to think differently. So we're not just trying to keep thinking the way we are and try and bring what God is saying into 
our categories in our world, but we're trying to renew our minds, not trying to, God is renewing the minds of his people, that we, we see the world his way. Um, so in that sense, and that probably explains why uh, Tom and myself, you know, we don't use three illustrations a sermon. You know, we're not always trying to keep us in secular categories and say, here's some biblical truths. Let me bring that into our secular world and think in terms of secular categories. It's not what we're doing. Um, now, um, and in interestingly, I think the thing that a number of people have commented is at the end of the day, I think it makes the whole thing a lot easier to understand. That actually, when you do enter the story of the Bible, it makes sense. So when you think in terms of Jew and Gentile, as we have been doing, you look at the book of Acts and, I mean, there's so many examples. Actually, the Bible makes sense. Um, so it's often told that illustrations are there to make things easier. But actually, I think we're finding that with a bit of, um, a little bit of work, and certainly, you know, our job is to explain things clearly, um, and comprehensively that actually we're making sense of of these things and so then you kind of think well you know if, you, if we were to tell an illustration it'd be like well why are you telling us this story because we've you, we've already understood what's been said um, so that's so in that sense that's probably the direction we're going in that said um, we do tell stories um, I always say tell stories it always feels like they uh, you know like a naughty boy telling stories as in illustrations um and but i think the ones we tell are just particularly good so i don't know what's the trinity favorite probably the boy and the horse um so i don't know do you want me to tell that one or do you just know that one um boy and the horse so that's the one with um uh if i can remember it so this is the one about basically um, a father promises his uh, uh, young boy that when he's 21, he will buy him a horse and cart. When he gets to 21, his father gives him a car. Um, the son does not say to the father, you promised me a horse and cart or a horse, you've given me a car. Um, because actually the father has given him more than a horse He's given him a car and the reason why he's given him a car is because the motor car has been invented and actually that's that, that's now the mode of transport and you have to think well what on earth does that illustrate well that illustrates the fact that in the old testament a lot of the promises about what will god god will do for his people are put in terms that the people in the old testament would understand so for example at the end of the book of ezekiel promises a um a temple and a, a sacrificial an operating sacrificial system from the return from exile and it it's in terms that surpasses the return from exile this is like final fulfillment terms but it's it's, it's talking about a sacrificial system you just think when we read that we just think well we don't have a sacrificial system we have the sacrifice the lord jesus christ once for all um and the way we're putting that together is that actually if Ezekiel had given a vision of a man dying on a cross, the people wouldn't have understood what that meant. It would make no sense for them. For, for the prophet or for God to communicate to the people that he would make provision for sin 
the way to communicate that is to promise a fully functional sacrificial system. The fact that God doesn't provide that, but provides the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, you're not saying to, um, to God, you, you, you haven't given us what we promised. He, he's, 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 he's more than that. He's, he's broken the boundaries of that. It's been surpassed because this, is, this sacrifice covers all people. Um, all sin is covered. Um, so, yeah, so in that sense, I, that feels like quite a good illustration because it's, it, it um, um, helps you to understand that, that concept, which can be, can be tricky to understand and it's sort of wor worth the worth the um the effort so um so yeah that's a few uh a few thoughts i mean there's no like illustration police in you know, people call illustrations we're not um um there's no there, there are no rules I don't think we'd get away with it. If I started telling you any illustrations, you'd be just like, "What? just tell us what's going on. You don't need to tell me a story about this, that and the other. Um, yeah. Okay. So hopefully that helps Nikki, but by all means, come back to me if you want to. I'm trying to think what other illustrations we use. It's just a boy and a horse. They probably are the ones. Uh, oh, I know. There's the one about the um, um, uh, chewing gum. That's a good one. You know the one about um, a kid walks into a class and the teacher says, um, "You can't chew gum. Uh, you can't chew gum." And the kid says, "I think you're wrong, sir. I think you're fine. I'm chewing gum." And the teacher goes, "No, you misunderstood. You are chewing gum, but it's my classroom and it's not permitted here." And that illustrates this whole idea of. When in 1 John it talks about you cannot sin as God's people, it's not saying that we will not sin because those who say we don't sin deceive ourselves, 1 John 1. The whole idea is we cannot go on sinning because it's not permitted. Every sin we do as God's people is done without excuse. That having been blood-bought by Christ, we're now to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Um, so we do sin and there the propitiatory sacrifice is there but we're not permitted to and we're called to be holy so again i think that's a another story that just illustrates the two different uses of you cannot um anyway i won't go through all the other <laughs> illustrations uh, but be one for the discussion group of <laughs> other illustrations okay question from ben oh ben should we use parables instead Oh, the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, yes. Um, wow. That is interesting. Um, <clears throat> hmm. Well, I mean, I feel like I'm going to open up, um, uh, I'll say a can of worms and not just, just something which is um, um, often not talked about. I mean, it's interesting, why does Jesus tell parables? Um, does he tell them as illustrations to help the people understand? 
Um, so mark four. Um, so mark four, he tells the parable of the sower. Da, da, um, and then verse 10, having told the parable, he then says, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And he goes on to explain what this parable means. So it's quite interesting what Jesus is doing there. It's not like he's thinking, okay, I want to teach about the mixed response to uh, the gospel. Um, I've explained it as best as I could, but to help the people understand, I'm going to tell a story about the sower. I mean, it's just not the way around he does it. He tells a parable. No one has a clue about what it means. Um, and then he explains it to those to whom he chooses to disclose the meaning of that parable to. Um, and in many ways, it's, it's designed to work that way, that in the first instance, the parable is um, uh, obscure, difficult to understand. And actually, when you read a lot of the parables, often the people are confused. They think he says something significant. They think he says something against them, but there's, they need to be um, explained. So, so in terms of like, should we use, I mean, I think we should, uh, obviously as teaching the whole counsel of God, we want to be teaching the parables and explaining the parables of Jesus. Um, because that's part of um, the disclosure that we've received from him. But um, I feel a little bit, um, uh, it's, in my mind, it's not so obvious that that then becomes a, um, um, a template for then thinking, well, us telling parables and they somehow then become the illustrations in which we illustrate biblical truths because that doesn't seem to be why Jesus uh, tells them. Um, so, yeah, I probably, um, probably leave it with that. Cool. Um, in which case, we put this. Um, here.